morning we will be in the book of Esther once again. Esther chapter 5, if you'd like to turn there. Esther chapter 5, starting in verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. Let us pray. Father, we thank you once again for the Lord's Day, on which your people can gather and hear from your word. We ask that you would speak through Adam to feed your flock this morning. And we ask that you would help us as we listen to be alert, attentive, and thoughtful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we come back um, to the text of Esther, you recall where we have been so far in the text approaching chapter 5, the weight of the moment is finally upon Esther. Mordecai has made a scene, Esther asked him to go away, he didn't want to go away by way of getting new clothes, and everything amplified from that point forward. Uh, she has called then on her behalf a feast to last for three days and for three nights. And you know, the nature of the feast is different than the uh, kind of impulsive uh, fasting, or excuse me, I said feast, I, I meant fast. Uh, they're quite opposite, actually. Um, uh, so uh, the, the, the fast that occurred earlier in the text was responsive and kind of impulsive. It, it, uh, they heard of the tragic uh, edict that is going forward for the destruction and annihilation of the Jewish community, the minority peoples across the entire um, 127 provinces uh, of the Persian Empire. The response to that is obvious. It would be still, in many ways, the response today, particularly of God's people, to then fast, to, to, to weep, and to lament. Then, as things escalate, and the agency focuses through the narrative to emphasize Mordecai, Esther, and Haman, then, then Mordecai begins to kind of, now it's making the transition where he's going to fade and Esther is going to, the text is going to center and focus upon Esther and her leadership role or her agency now as a part of God's deliverance of his people. So at that moment, she recognizes, I, I, she displays tremendous courage. Immediately then she asks for intercession on her behalf, please fast for me. So again, the nature of it not now being reflexive to the events, but intercessory in its focus. Again, we know consistently across the pages of the book of Esther, there is no direct reference to God. But the act of calling a fast that is intercessory in nature implies an appeal for divine faith. So we know that faith is present, at least I feel comfortable granting for Esther that faith is present. I feel comfortable, again, granting it for Mordecai. It's a challenge, but I think, again, a weakened faith, but nonetheless a present faith that clings to a sovereign God. 
We noted last week that that emphasis as Pastor Dan is working through attributes and, and theology proper and understanding the God that we worship and serve, the God that gives shape and meaning to our lives. And so he spoke last week particularly of the sovereignty of God. And you'll see it here in the text again as we see this interplay between human agency, providence, and sovereignty. Um, notice with Esther as we reflect upon her comments prior to entering chapter 5 in the escalation of where we go here as she enters the courtroom of Hasuerus, uh, you notice where uh, she speaks in verse 16 after she asks for an intercessory um, fast to be held on her behalf. She then says at the end in conclusion of 16, then I will go to the king. And then she notes once again, there is danger, real actual danger for me in doing so in the comments, though it is against the law. So you're looking at life and you're recognizing I'm heading in for a very difficult set of circumstances. And I'm also going to apply to those difficult sets of circumstances an act of piety and obedience. I'm going to pray. I'm going to fast. I'm going to appeal to God to act on my behalf. And then you recognize how they work. They are not one-for-one -one correspondence. We, we, we obey because obedience is good and just and right to do. We are the creature. We are the sheep of his pasture. He is the creator. It is good and right for us to obey. In and of itself, to the glory of God. And often you'll feel that tension. Because you'll feel that the act of obedience will result in the right returns as you have placed the right returns in a particular hierarchy or order. I think of this acutely for some, uh, that, that their walk with Christ or commitment to the gospel cost them their family. It, it, it's a hard circle to square because it feels that that should not be the response. Those who it costs a dating relationship that's very serious and they want it. Um, again, because the calculus on our part as creatures can feel we're owed now because we did for you, you do for us. And, and, and we can easily slide into this legalistic relationship with God when we want one. That, there, that, there, that there's a quid pro quo that takes place next for obedience. And we fail in that to recognize the grace of Christ and that obedience is good, right just for us to pursue and that we trust in God and the outcomes of providence according to his sovereign mercies that he has shown us as his children and Esther has that sense of it she arrives there because you notice after she says I'm going acts of piety let's perform in obedience to God and then she resolves under sovereignty to say if I perish recognizing the role of obedience and piety in the life of God's people to not make it a mechanism but to recognize obedience, fasting, and prayer is right for us to do to seek a favorable response from heaven but we entrust our lives to God and his will once again we just need to be reminded as we approach the text as we see God's acts of deliverance Obedience is never for manipulation, but it is just right and good to 
the sheep of Christ's pasture, pasture to perform. Also, I want to note for you as we approach the text, you notice the beginning of verse uh, 1 of chapter 5. On the third day, Esther puts on her royal robes. And then there was the third day request that, that, the, that the feast be held at the feast. I'm going to say that the rest of the sermon, and I'm just going to put that out there right now. And just when I say it, look past it and know I mean fast. And I do know those two things to be different. So with that out of the way, I'm just going to use them both probably. We'll work it out together. But the, but the, the idea that uh, of three day, I do want to note for you, because we receive the text of Holy Scripture um, as indeed without error. And, and we receive it as put together by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, and as we think of how God unites history, what is at the center of history? None other than the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so everywhere, and everything is moving toward the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you consider the literary works of Holy Scripture in the 66 canonical books that we, that we hold dear, our faith, you'll see the printings and the work of inspiration all across in unique ways, right? In ways that stir and, and, and strengthen and nourish. I, I would just draw your attention here is yet one more. Uh, that isn't simply a literary convention, but it's noting purposely by sovereign structure God's acts of deliverance in units of three days. And again, you know where that culminates. Of course, the center of all human history, uh, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. On, on which day? Third. There's, I'll note for you simply, and, and then I'll move past, because I'm not making a sermon out of this, but I wish you to truly recognize Abraham and Isaac. When we talk about typologies, and we talk about how there's foreshadowing events that point to the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of history is, is moving toward his exaltation and his resurrection and ascension on the third day. Um, Abraham and Isaac, Genesis 22 you remember Abraham was going to say, he said to those who gathered with him, uh, you stay here, me and the boy are going to go over there and we're going to worship. I'll be back. Uh, then we re realized that Abraham received Isaac as though back from the dead. If you note carefully within that text of Genesis 22, the provision of the ram, the deliverance of Isaac is on the third day. Um, God's presence at Sinai, Exodus 19, the others are gathering and God is going to descend. Uh, a tremendous uh, provision for the people of God at Sinai. Filled with hope and yet certainly terrified, God's presence to act on behalf of Israel occurred on the third day. Hosea as well in chapter 6, verse 12, coming out of Babylonian captivity, again another act of God's deliverance. He speaks of the day of our resurrection, that is, reviving Israel. And he speaks that this will occur on the third day. Of course, you know, perhaps maybe one of the more um, popular ones you can think of are the three-day acts throughout Holy Scripture of God's acts of deliverance on behalf of the people of Jonah. Jonah spent how many days 
three days. Uh, of course, our Lord helps us connect those dots by, in his own life, referring to the Jonah events as uh, foreshadowing events speaking of his own resurrection. But it wasn't the first time. Again, you can read the text of Scripture and see God is moving all things and events towards the climax, the fulfillment of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the final one. Whether it's, again, Abraham and Isaac, God at Sinai, Israel's resurrection, Jonah in the belly of a whale, or Esther. And the people of God being favorably delivered by Ahasuerus for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's acts of delivering his people pointing forward towards Jesus Christ in acts of deliverance on the third day. So here we arrive at it in chapter 5, and again, it, as good readers, we rejoice to see uh, the announcement. We're on the third day. Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. And the king's quarters, uh, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won, his, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter. And you recall, if he doesn't, uh, in this moment, we can read it simply and we can keep moving on. We've been triggered to consider redemption and uh, acts of salvation by the use in the setup of the third day events. But we still uh, consider Esther is walking in uh, not knowing if she will be delivered or executed. She won the favor and, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and she touched the tip of the scepter in that acceptance and humility. Yes, can I approach? Yes, you may. And she approaches. Verse 3, and the king said to her, what is it? And here's the first reference uh, in this language and interplay of, of Esther as queen. Queen Esther, what is your request? Whatever it is, it will be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. Now, at this point in the text, as we're entering into the years, if we were to track all the dates, which we don't have time to do, we'd simply say that at this point, Esther is married to Ahasuerus for five years. So, again, while certainly neglected over the course of those five years, it's not like they lived together. Here, he hasn't seen her in a very long period of time. And he continued to be a philanderer, uh, both secular history and the biblical uh, text indicates in secular history confirms he was a hedonist and and he picked esther and it's like well you're the icon of all of my power here beautiful queen esther but his harem abounds and she lives quite separately from him so she is nervous in going to him that if he doesn't receive her favorably it's not like a bad day it's death so he is not living close with Esther at this point in time, but she then, in appearing to him, wins his favor. So it indicates to us at least that while certainly neglected over the course of those five years of marriage, Esther is still seemingly very loved by Ahasuerus. And you see that again in uh, two ways. First, see, as we hear from the, the writer in verse 2, she won his favor. She won the favor right in his sight, right when she walked in with the beautiful uh, royal clothing on uh, in preparation for this exchange. Uh, he was smitten. She was a very beautiful woman. 
And then you see just how much he really cared for Esther when he saw her looking so gorgeous and beautiful above all of his other, uh, you know, women that he just interacts with and engages with. Or not, but, but Esther's markedly different. Uh, and, and how do we know that? We'll look at the amplification of his response. What is your request? Why are you here? And having won his favor, then, continue with the text in verse 3. It shall be given you. Well, well, what? You haven't even asked anything. Right, 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 right. Even to half of my kingdom. Now, as we consider uh, what he's providing Esther as a blank canvas to write upon that canvas, whatever it is that she is desirous of, and he can't figure it out, why would you be here? Again, that's a notation as we consider him not understanding her Jewish background. Edict. But he, he, so it gets back to the to the underlying current of understanding the element of faith here between Esther and Mordecai, and Mordecai's raising of Esther and their role in the administration, and then him and her gaining Ahasuerus's favor, and then her role as queen. It, it, it is a bit, you know, not, not straight lines. So here he's even puzzled. Why are you here? What brings you? Even though everyone, and we saw it where he and Haman sat back and had a drink together as they watched all of Susa um, implode into chaos. And it didn't bother him at all. And now here comes Esther, and he's like, why are you here? It's important to note, however, also that what he's offering Esther is not actually half of his kingdom. He wouldn't, you know, hand over half the Persian Empire, half the 127 provinces to Esther. Uh, Esther at this point, that's not what he's offering. We noted this before months ago, but this was mentioned in the similar case of John the Baptist in Mark 6. You remember where uh, uh, Herod is in an illegal relationship with his brother Philip, Philip's wife. So, so Herod then uh, is with uh, his brother's wife. Uh, John the Baptist preaches against that union and because of that, she then wants him killed. So then, in, in front of Herod, Herod, uh, I, Herod, Herodosius, Herod, Herod, I better look at uh, Herodias. I, yeah, Herodias, um, the daughter of Herodias, with Herod, dances in front of Herod, uh, pleasing him in such a manner. He then offers what? Ask of whatever you will up to half of my kingdom. So again, whether we're in Mark 6 or we recognize it here with uh, Ahasuerus and Esther, it's not an actual offering of half of all of my goods. Instead, it is simply here an over-the-top expression of power and generosity. Essentially, it's like we would simply say, um, well, ask of me whatever you want and I will give it to you. Whatever it is, just, just ask. It's, a, it's an over-the-top statement of generosity. Now, it's nearly impossible for us to understand the elation that Esther must be feeling. Again, we, we just moved quickly, but consider a three-day-long fast where she waited to approach Ahasuerus, concerned for her own life, um, about her Jewishness being exposed and his response to it. And as, as soon as he sees her, he gazes upon her and says, I would give you absolutely anything. Not only 
is Esther at this point so elated that she is not to be struck down in a fit of rage or his ego being struck down. So then he responds, how dare you come here unauthorized? You know better of all people. But rather, not only is she not being struck down, it is the first confirmed sign of a favorable response from heaven to the cries, fasting, and prayers of the church. It's the first signal. Walking in there terrified, beautified as much as you can possibly be in order to warm relations with your husband uh, that is the king in this formal arrangement as she is the figure of life. Following a three-day fast, and the first sign of will we be warmly received is now here. Again, why? We, we would say, what is it? It's got to be uh, more than her beauty. And if we rely upon the wisdom of Solomon, he gives us insight in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart, you remember, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he and now he has turned the heart of Hashuerus warmly toward Esther. And he has done it, I do wish to note for you again, he has done it on the third day. He is delivering his church on the third day. And now Esther, uh, showing great political skill moving forward, you notice what her next move is. At this point, she invites the king to a feast that she has prepared for him. And most importantly, um, the, uh, the goal is to get Haman there. Haman is the target. Notice as she moves forward with great political skill, I'll, I'll give you whatever you want. Just, just you say it, and it's yours. Now is the moment. Verse 4, and Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Again, I note for you carefully here as you consider Esther's political skill, but she's also showing tremendous And she's demonstrating it very carefully and calculated toward the development of the deliverance of God's people. And I want you to see, notice how the danger is present. It's not an easy walk, this situation of entering in with Hashuerus. Now she's passed and she senses one thing for sure, God's favor. How? How is she confirmed to move forward with a measure of confidence? Maybe her, maybe her heart, her blood pressure is coming down a little bit. Because she's sensing the tide is changing in her favor. How? Oh, he immediately offers her whatever she wants. And then with skill and courage, she moves forward. She invites him, but as I mentioned to you, the target, Haman, to come to a feast. But notice the continuation of the scene as it develops. Verse 5, then the king said, bring him quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king, and then it's noted for you once again, Haman is coming to the feast. 
so the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now, notice that not only the political skill to be able to use her relationship with Ahasuerus to deliver God's people by bringing Haman with him over to the event of the feast, but as I mentioned to you, it's not all smooth sailing. There is still much intrigue at the meal. How so? Notice the detail of verse 6. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the portion of drinking wine at the feast can make Esther's uh, success unknown. You remember how we would read the story of Ahasuerus drinking wine. He is an ill-tempered and erratic man, especially when intoxicated. The last time we saw uh, uh, Hashiwaris uh, drinking inordinately, well, it was not just his time with Haman where they sat back and had drinks together as they watched Susa go down. Well, there's not much expanse on that, but we can characterize how he probably handles uh, his wine or uh, a continued drinking. And that is because we saw it, the introduction to it in the Vashti episode. You remember, uh, I'll simply cite for you the way that it's described. Uh, remember, when he was throwing a feast to demonstrate kind of a flex, to show off his power and to gain confidence from the population to go to war, he threw them an, a 180-day feast. It lasted, dignitaries came in and out, and the people were given to partying. As far as the drinking was concerned, he added, verse 8, that according to drinking edict, there is no compulsion. Have what you want, don't be disciplined, drink over the top, lose your way. It's a party. Well, what does that tend to do to a man like Ahasuerus? He is not Gregorius. He's not the fun guy that everybody wants to hang out with. Um, we saw he's a very ill-tempered uh, and uh, ego-driven man. And then you add alcohol in or inordinate levels to a man like that, and you're in for trouble. And that's exactly what occurred at the ending of that feast. And you recall verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. He commanded uh, Vashti to come, and then when she refused, the text concludes, at this the king became enraged, uh, and his anger burned, and everybody who saw the king's face understood it. So with tremendous courage and political skill, Esther sets peace. She's acting in faith that the setting of the table will occur. But I'll let you know when I come back. And she entered into the king's court in faith. And remember her resolve to God's sovereignty. But she set a feast uh, in faith. And she acted with courage and skill. And now she's asked, being Hasuerus and Haman, the target, to come to the feast. And yet now the execution of what she really wants to achieve. King Hashuerus is drinking wine. It's a tenuous spot for Esther to be in. Yet Esther, again, sensing the favor of God with her, courageously demonstrates strategic patience. I'll show you how. Notice what happens next. Because it moves from courage then to Courage, act, patience. Verse 6, and as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, and it's a repeat of what he's already asked her. 
what are you wanting? What, what is it? It, it, it is, whatever it is, it shall be granted. And, and, and then he presses her yet again. What is your wish? Wh whatever it is, just say it, it will be given as he asked her earlier. And now they're at the, at the feast and the wine is moving with him. And he's still saying generosity above all, what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it will be fulfilled. Whatever it is you want, just come out with it. Tell me, I'm ready to give it away. Surely as, as readers or, or, or film watchers, you'd sit and you think, here comes the big moment. This is when you strike when the iron's hot. You know, Haman's right here. Let, let's make something occur. Verse 7, she demonstrates the courage and patience necessary for the deliverance of God's people. Verse 7, then Esther answered, well, my wish and my request is if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. See, I think there's something significant to be learned as we kind of wind down our time together this morning. There's something significant to be gleaned from this episode of courageous patience displayed here by Esther that is significant for our lives. We all know, each and every one of us, understands that patience is one of the most difficult and yet most important virtues to cultivate and to exercise in our lives. If we were to go down to the things that we... Uh, find of great value to our lives. And then we think to ourselves most often, why do I not possess these values? Well, much of it can be driven on because of a lack of patience that I demonstrate. I have goals where I want to be. I have, you know, things that I'm setting up for myself that I want to achieve. But one of the most key ingredients alongside of perseverance and courage to act is the patience to endure one of our, the lack of patience is one of our greatest enemies to doing all the things that truly matter. You see, Esther could have overreached in this moment. Haman's there, Hashuerus is there. The political calculation to understand is now my moment or should I wait and demonstrate patience? Are we really where we need to be in the emotions and in the authority in order for me to exact my plan of deliverance on behalf of God's people? Esther could have immediately overreached, rushed forward, looking for an immediate resolution to the stress of the situation, which must have been immense. There's something careful to learn there about our own lives and the plans of God's providence that we wish to see come forward. Oftentimes we do overreach, we overextend, we rush forward looking for immediate resolutions due to the stress of life situations and problems that we face. But you notice here with Esther, 
of which is deeply applicable to the life of faith that we also live and exercise daily. Instead of rushing forward and overreaching, she carefully displays the wisdom of Christ, as expressed in the words of Solomon yet again, Proverbs 25:15. Solomon says, With patience, a ruler may be persuaded. Esther chooses the approach of patience in order to see God act deliberately and completely on behalf of his people. You see, patience that is deliberate and resolved. You notice that patience, often when we think of patience, we think of like sitting and waiting. And you notice, if you consider it in the life of Esther, the patience that is demonstrated here is not a sit and wait. It's a deliberate method of life. Very carefully. She sets a feast. She comes. She patiently waits. She looks forward to flying forward to let God's purposes blossom. Deliberate and resolved waiting under hard problems is a Christ-like proof fueled by his grace and enlivened in our lives by his mercy. Let me conclude with you these words of patience, deliverance, lift our hearts and encourage us as we go forth into God's providence. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. In times of anxiety and challenge and hardship of providence, may we by his grace to him in the spirit of patience. I read for you the words of Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. Think of Esther. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, set my feet upon a rock. Made steps for me that were secure. He put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in Him. Our Father, we thank you for your holy scriptures. We thank you for the myriad of lessons and depth that are provided for us, the sheep of Jesus Christ's pasture, our true and great shepherd, that you lead us beside waters that would feed us into the pastures, that we would feed upon Jesus Christ as we gather, displayed throughout his word, that we might receive the words of instruction, that we might hear of our impatience as we meditate upon your patience, and we would once again repent and an endeavor after lives of new obedience. We praise you for the acts of deliverance and salvation for your people. We praise you as we see them and read them, and rehearse them, preach them, receive them. We praise you for the risen Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, 
We ask that you would add the benefit of your words to our lives by your Holy Spirit. That where there is a seed germinating, it would bring flower. That where there was no seed, you would produce seed. Where the word falls, the water, it would produce and not the crop. Nourish us by these things. We ask this in your holy name.